and we are as living creatures. And we are actually in union with him so that we might have communion with him, that we would have continuing fellowship with him. And to pursue a wisdom and knowledge that's only found in Jesus Christ. That is our goal. And um, as we approach the text, I invite you and encourage you to take this on as a, a, a consolation and a challenge. The consolation is, look nowhere else. It is Jesus. Look to him. Consolation. You don't have to look anywhere else for all wisdom and knowledge. It is in one person, Jesus Christ. But the challenge is that this particular beauty and the treasures of Jesus are hidden, hidden in Christ. That is, there is more to be had. There is more to find. The beauty of God's wisdom and that he would demonstrate his glory in a hidden way in Christ is that it would be your glory and your honor to find those things, to pursue Jesus Christ, to realize right now in your present moment you do not know him, as you could know him more. For we are talking about the eternal God. Here is um, this passage. Is Paul before was mentioning his sufferings. And how he has been suffering for uh, the Colossians. And that he particularly had this phrase where he said. He was filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction for them. That kind of suffering uh, that was um, so important to Paul to see. Uh, his ministry for the church. He goes on in the second chapter at the opening to say, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding that understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, the point of the letter. It is that simple. It is Jesus. Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden, he says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you are now taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And there is Paul outlining everything of the significance and beauty of Jesus Christ. The particular reality of the ends in saying the whole fullness of deity dwells inside of him. The whole fullness of God dwells inside of Jesus. That wisdom, the, the completeness of it all in Jesus Christ is said very much in that last phrase. If you were to take that phrase enough, and meditate on it long enough, the implications of it are astounding, is to say there is no other place to go to have access to the fullness of God. That the fullness of God dwells inside of him bodily. That is, that is there are two tremendous mysteries, you could say, in the Christian faith. 
Two tremendous ones. There's mysteries in general, things that are interesting, debated, and studied. But the two, maybe, the two largest of them all is the triunity, the nature of God, and the incarnation of Christ. That, that God is three in one in some mysterious, remarkable way. And then that God incarnated himself in humanity. These are the highest, the most loftiest things that the Christian faith could offer. And here Paul is saying that, the source of that, seeing that, is once you understand that, you'll, you won't be tempted to look anywhere else for wisdom or knowledge. If you really believe what he just said, that in Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity, and deity, the fullness of God, who made it all, knows it all, where else should you go? Where else could you look? As he's communicated his wisdom and virtue to us by his own human union in Christ, that he became like us to communicate to us in an analogous way that we could never wrap our minds around. And he has come so close and so low to us to even speak to us in baby talk to speak to us in our language, to speak to us in some way that we could understand him. So Jesus is complete. Paul's message is this to the church. Some uh, members of the church he actually knew. Uh, Epaphras, we saw earlier in the beginning of the letter, he knew him personally and, and loved him dearly. But as we read here, you've never seen my face, Paul says. We've never even seen each other face to face. He's writing a letter to a church whom he doesn't know. It's a specific letter for a specific purpose, namely, as we've said, to exalt or glorify Jesus Christ before them. But it's specific with general implications or a general message. That is to say, if you look at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, uh, when this letter is read among you, church in the Colossian area, have it read in the church of Laodiceans. Paul is writing his letters generally. His purpose, that's why it's so hard to know what was the false teaching that he's trying to address in this letter. Because he never addresses it perfectly. He never addresses it right on with all the intimate details of what their problem was. Paul's purpose in these letters was actually for them to be circulating, to be going from church to church. Hey, Colossians, after you read this, don't keep it for yourself. Go down to the street, because Laodicea was actually very close to Colossae. Go down there and give them this letter. They should read it too. So you see what we're doing here as we contemplate the beauty of Jesus Christ through this letter of the Colossians is Paul's very intention was, though he was addressing a specific issue, was to have general implication, general application. And here we are today as a 21st century church saying, yes, yes, this is for you. Like there is no way in which the centrality and the completeness and beauty of Jesus Christ is not a very important thing for us to have our minds fixed on and our hearts altered toward. The purpose and the challenge that he's giving to them particularly has to do with dealing with idols, that they would not look elsewhere. For that is what we call an idol. These desires or satisfactions in the heart to look anywhere else but God. And they were tempted by these idols. Then they were interested in knowledge, and this is a particular interest for us now. The idolatry, particularly this morning, what Paul is addressing in this moment in the letter is the idolatry of knowledge, to look for knowledge that is not found in Jesus Christ. They say that generation 
uh, Z is the most uh, educated generation in uh, the history of the world, which it used to be the millennials, but, but we got bumped out because the new ones have more education, I guess. Um, but we do idolize uh, education, and education is good, knowledge is good, right? They say the stats generation Z now, the most recent one, uh, anyone who's around 10 to 25 years old um, will most likely be the best educated generation. Always every generation previously standing on the shoulders of the one that laid the ground for them. Uh, it says that 57% of those in this generation will uh, go to college with a two or four year degree. 52% of millennials uh, had this type of education. 43% of Gen X and so on. Each generation is becoming more and more educated, whatever that might mean, the quality education or the rigor or the ability to think critically. Uh, that's up for debate, truly, as we all know. Um, but the paper shows it. Got a, got a diploma. Um, education is something that we very much value because we very much value knowledge. And knowledge is beautiful, good, it's virtuous. It's the key that he's pulling out of the beauty of Jesus is that there's so much knowledge and wisdom. The desire for that is good. Seeking that is great. But there is an abnormal knowledge. There is an idolatrous type of knowledge that actually is just pure idolatry. Idols have ways of giving birth, right? So if you are particularly interested in knowledge, why? Well, well knowledge is a source of power, information. It's a source of honor. You're the person with the answers. You have a dignity or influence. All idols are wrapped up into this one great thing of in the garden of always wanting to try to be something like God. To know more, to have more, to have his power, to take of that tree, the knowledge of the good and evil. Right? It's all wrapped up in there. And Paul is pulling them back and us this morning to say, do not go anywhere else. The beauties of Jesus Christ can satisfy you in all the knowledge and wisdom that you would ever seek or desire. It's funny that we always are um, struggling with the types of knowledge that we want that someone else has. So if, I, if someone's particularly interested in making the best, uh, the best cupcakes out there, I'm not very interested in making cupcakes, so I'd have a less, uh, less desire to be jealous of them. Oh, that person's amazing at cupcake making. Right? But when we actually can find these idols, and here's a diagnostic for your soul, who or when do you start to get a little uh, covetous toward, jealous toward, Someone does something better than you, knows how to do something particularly well, and that bothers you. In your mind, you have these bitter thoughts toward them. That, that, that is your idolatry of knowledge. If they have a particular interest or ability to do something like you, similar to you, or even better than you, and that bothers you, there it is. That's your idol. You're identifying yourself way too much into this piece of information or knowledge you know. Funny example for this, and, and, and a, 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 I think a good antidote for Father's Day is the way men can be with these things. It usually involves, you know, cars, construction, guns, fishing, hunting. I know more about that, or I know more about that. Particularly cars, something that happens. I remember when I was younger, uh, a bunch of us uh, younger guys, all single, uh, young adult age, went camping. And, uh, well, Paul says that there is a type of knowledge... Uh, that puffs up, and a certain type of uh, knowledge that's based on love that actually builds up. 
And I remember it's just the macho thing. You, know, you go in camping and everyone thinks, uh, well, no, that's not where you'd put the tent. Or, oh, you didn't build the fire that way, right? And they're all like young guys insecure in themselves. And they're all trying to be like, I know what to do. I'm the guy that, know, I'm, the, I'm the Bear grills that can keep us alive out here in the, in the harsh elements of the wilderness. Well, really, it was a lot of puffy knowledge. It was, and that, that, that's, that's it right there. That kind of idea that you're identifying yourself in a knowledge or ability or a power or a skill or a wisdom or an artfulness that you have, that you're particularly good at, better than most. That is idolatry. And it, and it presents itself as being puffy and arrogant and, and your identity is all wrapped up into it. That's because you fail to see Jesus. Paul says so beautifully in Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I pledge, I resolve now before you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That you would brag about nothing. That you don't know anything. The only thing that matters to you. The only thing you really know is that Jesus Christ is a great Savior and that you are a great sinner. Now Paul knew other things, but before them he says, listen, I know nothing. I'm going to demonstrate to you true humble knowledge and relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ that I am not coming into this church, the Corinthians at that time, to say I am an apostle and I have this figured out and I know this theology and all this other stuff. All I know is Jesus Christ is a tremendous savior and I am a tremendous sinner. That's the kind of knowledge that builds up. That's the knowledge that fixes the, the, the eyes of the heart upon Jesus. And so we see here that that same problem is being presented to this church. The Colossians were tempted uh, with wisdom and knowledge. Paul tells them that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. See, there were false teachers in the church that were coming up with many different types of doctrines. Now, the reason we know this is such a general letter is because we actually don't know exactly what the false doctrines were. Paul is addressing them generally. They apply even to us today. It seems as though, from reading the letter, that they were emphasizing some type of mystical experience of the divine or of God that was an increase in their knowledge. Or uh, turning themselves towards some type of spiritual being. Or having an abnormal view of the Jewish law. These are the things we'll get through in the weeks ahead to see what Paul is addressing and where are their pitfalls in finding some abnormal knowledge. He goes on in verse 8 to say, See no one take you captive with, and here's the four, philosophy. The love of wisdom. Sounds good. Philosophy. Don't be captive by that. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty or vain deceit. That will turn you away from Jesus. According to, number three, human traditions. There's some type of honor and the fear of men that you have to line with the traditions and the way things are thought of that will turn you away from Christ. And most interestingly is the fourth one he mentions, elemental spirits. Storkeion is a unique word that could either mean Spiritual beings in the ancient world, the way they use that word is referring to spiritual beings, angels, or demons. 
or um, elements like earth, wind, and fire. Actually, the ancient, the ancient world, that was their periodic table. It's very small. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't just the name of a music group. It was earth, wind, and fire. Like That was the fundamental principles of reality, their elements, not zinc and copper. Here, Paul's not referring to our modern elemental uh, table, but it could be something like that. Most likely, what he's referring to truly is spiritual beings, these elemental spirits of the world that are the powers and forces behind many things. All this, he says, is not according to Christ. And then he blows it all out of the water by saying, in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Where else are you going to go? What else do you want? We're talking about Jesus the Christ. What else would you have? What book or magazine can you read? What philosophy and invention of some man sitting in an armchair, coming up with ruminations of his own mind, could possibly satisfy this? If this is true, that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, where else should you go? And so he's trying to draw you, them, me, back to see, no, if you pull away, if you look somewhere else, it's because you've missed the reality of the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the purpose he draws out, and I do, and my intention in this sermon is to draw you to that, to excite you, to see the beauty of Christ, to pursue him, pursue him with your life. Pursue him with your intellectual life. Let the mind, let the eyes of your heart gaze upon him daily. And let the treasures that are locked up inside of him, the treasures of wisdom, of hidden, of knowledge, locked up inside of him, come out as you meditate on the beauties and the glories of Jesus Christ. This is what you're called to as a child of God. And do not look other places. If you're seeing him and not seeing his beauty, you need to look longer. You need to meditate more because they're there. But the text expressly says, though, he has hidden them. It's the glory of God. You don't just get to stomp right into the holy of holies. If you want to know more of the glory of Jesus Christ, you must work your way in, for these are hidden treasures. Paul's labor, he says, I want you to know how great... Of a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, it is a labor of love. What you find here is the context in which we find Jesus Christ. How will you learn of Jesus Christ? In the letter here, we find that it has to be in the context of the church. This is a beautiful thing. You do not go, and this, this is contrary to the way we, we think of these things, um, uh, mystical wisdom, spiritual stuff, uh, particularly you think of, uh, I, my, on, on the top of my tongue right now, is Buddhism. You know, where, where, where the man goes and sits at a tree in the wilderness for many, many days, right? And then he finds wisdom, the Bohai tree, the tree of wisdom. See, no, 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 no. What we're doing here, what Paul's doing here, it's real. It's in context. It's in life. The wisdom of Jesus Christ is, and his variegated beauties are uh, unfolded to us in the context of this, this thing, the church. And many in, in, in our culture don't view that as being spiritual. It's not mystic enough. It's just lights and tile ceilings and a bunch of you people. Like, is this spiritual? Like, is this? I thought, 
just kind of like normal and I'm not like, you know, like meditating under a tree or like humming or... See, look at how beautiful it is that Paul pulls this out. He says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, right, labor. He's saying this in reference to the unity of the church. There is the church universal. See, his labor is for them. Now, it's not clear in the text, but you imply very simply, Paul is in Rome in prison. They are in Asia Minor in Colossae. And then in addition to that, he says, also that church in Laodicea. How is it connected in such a way, particularly for a church he claims to never even see face to face, that he is suffering for them? His one particular verse we looked at last week, though absent in the body, you know, he says, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for you. There's a unity there. Paul is viewing himself in the context of the church to be united over very large distances. And then you have verse 5, and it's this interesting phrase, and it's debated on how to interpret, but it says, though absent in the body, I am present with you in spirit. Though absent in the body, I am present with you in spirit. I am in prison of Rome. You are free over there in a Roman city. I am bound. You are free. I am suffering. You are fine. I might be put to death, and you are comfortably reading this letter, but I am with you. Now, that could be interpreted as being more metaphorical, like my mind is in accord with you. Or it could be interpreted, and oftentimes is, as the mystical union of the church. That is, since we are all in Jesus Christ, we are all united in some spiritual way. Like, unless this whole thing is a metaphor, which it is not. You are truly righteous and justified because you are united to Jesus Christ, who is in the heavenlies at this moment. Right? And if you are in Christ... And you are in Christ, and you are in Christ, then we are all in Christ, and in some way, though indirectly, united together in Christ. Therefore, all the metaphors and all the references to union with Christ throughout all of the Bible is not just metaphor poetry. There is a spiritual relation there. There is an imputation, the accounting of God, as far as being united. And so Paul could even go to say, though I'm not with you in body, I am actually with you. In some way, perhaps. The struggling of this all is found that the only way we know Jesus is in the context of this church from the passage. This is the phrase. It's the most beautiful thing. I'll tie it all together as we look at um, verse 29. He says, I toil struggle uh, all uh, with energy powerfully works in me, right? We, we looked at that last week. I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works in me, warning everyone, teaching anyone, to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's ministry in word and deed was a witness, and his imprisonment was uniting the church for this purpose, to knit them together. And that's where the verse is we picked up. He says that your hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That is not going out into the woods to just have a personal spiritual experience. He says, I'm in prison suffering. I'm in prison for you. Filling up what's like in Christ's afflictions. For you. There's a union there. This is all connected. Colossae, never met you. This, hey, give this church to the Laodiceans. It's, there's a, there's a u- unity to the church in general. And he views his suffering in this prison for encouraging them that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That is key. 
that there's a particular knowledge of Jesus Christ in this exact context. Being knit together in love. Many say, I, I am a Christian, and then do not hang out with Christians or be part of a church of Christians that doesn't follow. Many say, I know something of Jesus, but have no knowledge of the dis- discipline of Jesus or of a church governed by pastors and elders. Many say, I am a Christian. I acknowledge myself as an American evangelical Christian. I'm not part of a church and I'm not in a church where there is the word preached and the sacraments presented. You can't divide Christ from his church. You can't. He is the head. The whole body being fitted together in him. And the way to know him more is to be in his body. The particular phrase being knitted together. An image of all sinew and, and ligament. He goes on later in the chapter to mention the body metaphor with that same word. Symbiazo. Knitted. Stitched. Ligaments. It has to do with being holding together. That, that the body is held together, but we particularly held together, knitted together in love. Love. That is the key to unlocking knowledge of Jesus Christ. Being knitted together in love as a church. I was thinking earlier, many of you know Helga Hanna. She knits amazing quilts. Like I said, she knows a lot about that. I'm offended because all her knowledge is better than mine. And I idolize my knowledge of quilt making, and I'm really, really offended right now. But apparently, you sew? Good. For the purpose of this sermon illustration, we will say she knits. Because that's how the ESV translates it. But as she's knitting or sewing, she's putting fabric together in pieces. The image of that is beautiful. See, having your hearts knit together in love. Do you view this church that way? Like, do you view yourselves individually as pieces of fabric being knit together? Because if you rip those fabrics apart, it hurts. It affects the whole canvas, the whole blanket. What's beautiful is that kind of art form is you can have so many different colors and textures and shapes all knitted together in a perfect unity. See, that, that is where you start to really learn about Jesus. That's how Paul says it. Your hearts will be encouraged being knit together in love. Your heartstrings. In the old world, they had a phrase called heartstrings because they actually thought that there was a nerve that connected to the heart that was the vitality of your beating heart. Obviously, that doesn't work anymore, and you won't find that in an anatomy or physiology book. But the phrase still remains with us heartstrings. Now, heartstrings mean those emotions or connectedness to you that uh, stirs deep emotions and affections. Heartstrings. Oh, you're pulling my heartstrings, right? The image of the church is that we would actually be knit together by our hearts. That we would be in such love with one another that it affects us. It can to the, give us great joy. All the, all the dangers of love is that it can create great joy and great sorrow. Great sacrifice and great reward, right? 
that context, if our hearts are knit together, this as a particular church, you can't learn this as the idea of the church universal, right? You can't have your hearts knit together all over there with the, the churches in uh, the Eastern Orthodox or, or some other place in the other world. It has to be in this way, like the place where the people, you know their names, you're sitting next to them now, you love them and then they offend you next month and you have to forgive them. Or in some way in which they, they actually are suffering and they're, they're in the hospital and, and you're bothered by that. Like someone else is in the hospital right now on the other side of the world. I don't know them and I'm not bothered by that. Right? But you have to be knit together in love so much so that you're bothered, that you're inconvenienced, that you're tormented. Like, but that's the danger of love. If you extend yourself in love that way, you will experience these emotions. And that is the context in which Paul begins to expand what it means to know Jesus. Like to know him more in the context of the church being knit together in love. It's like when you're walking around with your shoelaces untied. You can have your shoelace strings hanging out. Well, the danger of that is someone could step on your shoelaces. It's the same thing. There, there's a risk to having your hearts knit together, to having the strings of your heart, your heart strings extended. But with that will be the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For he's the one that suffered for all of us. He's the one that suffered and bought and paid and loves his church. And if you can in any way enter into that love in your micro level, you will know him. You will know him more. And you can't get that by just reading a theology book. These heartstrings, he uses this image of being knit together in love so that he can unfold what he's about to say about Jesus. Knit together in love for what purpose? Here it is. To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It's in that context you can learn so much of Christ. Being knit together in love that you could reach all the riches. There's more riches that you have not had yet. They're the riches of the knowledge. The knowledge, the full assurance that is. See, the point of knowledge is that your knowledge grows. You become more convicted of the things you believe. You can have a minimal amount of knowledge and kind of believe a certain truth. You can have a little higher amount of knowledge and continue to believe in that conviction. And then you can arrive to this, what Paul calls a full assurance that you really know Jesus being knit together in a church, hearts knit together in love. In that context, you can have reaching, reaching to the riches of the full assurance of the knowledge and understanding of God's mystery, which isn't, he doesn't clearly reveal Jesus so quickly, but if you look for him, you'll find him, which is Christ, to know Christ in that context. Do you want to learn about welding? You go to a trade school. You want to learn about baking, you go to a culinary school. You want to learn about Christ, you go to the Christians. You go to church, and you involve your life with them. And you will learn, being knit together in love, to know, to reach the full assurances, understanding of this great mystery, which is Christ. To know Christ is not just to read about him, but possibly to bleed for him. Think of the context of what he's saying. It's not just to read, but possibly to bleed. Like, there's a connection there, because that's what Jesus did for us, the church. And Paul, this is a prison letter. He went on to say earlier, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for you. So Paul is having his life threatened, prisoned, not just reading the Bible, drinking a cup of coffee. 
He's not just reading, he's potentially bleeding for the church as a prisoner, a martyr. More clearly, Paul writes another letter to the Philippians, the same year, the same time as Colossians. Another prison letter where he says very clearly how this connection works, that you can know Jesus more this way. I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That is, to know Jesus Christ is to share in his suffering. Now, the only way you can do that is if you identify with him in the church. See, there are university professors right now who are biblical scholars who do not love Jesus Christ. They just study it as an academic discipline. So they can read about Jesus. But if you get inside the church and identify yourself with Jesus and learn to suffer in identity with Jesus, you could be in a place to bleed for Jesus. And Paul goes so far in Philippians 3, as he's in prison, potential threat upon his life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection by sharing in his suffering. There's a knowledge there to be had in identifying with Christ in the real world where it's all on the line. And you can't know Jesus Christ that way unless you get to that place. And the only place that happens is identifying with him in this church, being knit together in love. That is God's mercy and grace upon our life. And this is something you and I are invited to, invited to pursue the wisdom of Jesus Christ in this context. We are here now. Look to the left and the right. This is it. This is where we learn. These are your fellow students in life with Christ. The pursuit of all wisdom and knowledge. And here is closing in this beautiful phrase, the best phrase of the whole passage. Pursuing the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, practical living, artfulness, Christ-like walk, Christ-like suffering, Christ-like speech, stuff you can't learn in a book, stuff that's not taught, it has to be caught, like how to be like Christ. Wisdom, information, knowing Jesus Christ, knowledge. But then he says, it's hidden. It's hidden. It's not quick to grab. It's only for those who want it. And there's more to be had. Knowledge of God and ourself produces that type of communion. And so here, as we close, demonstrate. Let me put before you, let me put before you how this works. What that verse means and how it really works. Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We know of God now because of Jesus Christ. We know that God is one, but because he has entered into the world, he has related his personality in such a way that we know he is also not numerically one, he is also three, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect trinity. And all three perfectly subsist as the fullness of God. It's a mystery. But this is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. To see that in Jesus. To know that he's related himself through time and space. That he has extended himself in such a way as reaching to us. That he's exposed part of his interworkings. Who he is. 
A beautiful reality of love, a personality of glory, folding upon glory, of circumcession of one inside the other, embracing the other, and perfect love and harmony and unity outside of time forever and eternity. Like that image meditated upon is remarkable. If you give your life to studying the Trinity, you will become godly. You will become truly godly. It is not some type of remote intellectual exercise. It is as practical as knowing the very being who created it all. What would be more practical than that? To contemplate his beauty. If we know of God, we will know of ourselves. And this is how the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God are unfolded to us through Jesus Christ. John Calvin was a famous theologian in the Reformed era. And he is famous for one portion in his book where he spoke about the sense of the divine. That every humanity has a sense of the divine. And he said, if we can know about God, we will know about ourselves. We can't just know about ourselves because we compare ourselves by ourselves and we rarely never know who we are. But if we compare ourselves by God, then we will see in the mirror clearly to actually see who we are, who we are like, who we are not like. Look at this beauty we find in Jesus. Jesus Christ, hidden in him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of yourself. How do you know yourself? Christ, the wisdom of knowledge of all of your sinfulness. Look to Jesus. You find truly what sin is. Like the sinfulness of your sin. Like actually how sinful are you? Jesus, dying on a tree for you. It's not a small thing to be sinful. It costs every, not one drop more, but not one drop less of Jesus' own blood. His life was to demonstrate his righteousness. Romans Clearly says Romans 3, he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to show his righteousness, to demonstrate his righteousness that he might be just in the justifier. That is, how sinful are you? I don't know. Look to the cross. What Meditate upon the beauties of Jesus to see, oh my gosh, I am utterly sinful. I am utterly sinful. This, this, this carcass of a man on a tree... Romans 3 says he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. That is to demonstrate God's perfect holiness and righteousness. That he had to die that way for you. How do you know yourself? Look to Jesus. That is how sinful you are. That is how sinful I am. That we never look to ourselves to find our sin. If we look to Christ to find our sin, oh, it is utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. If we look to one another, I'm not that bad. If we look to Christ, that was my sin, him on the tree, like that, to demonstrate God's perfect righteousness. There's no wisdom in the world for that outside of Jesus. It's locked up inside. Our own stubbornness, our cold-heartedness. Oh, that he would send himself, Romans 3, to put him forward as a propitiation for his divine forbearance. He has passed over all other sins. That is, our stubbornness is matched by, in Jesus we find, absolute beautiful patienceness. Our stubbornness, our hard-heartedness, we find that in Christ so demonstrated that the patience of God is found. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God are found in his patience. That through the cross, he passed over thousands of years and more of sin just to let it all hold back 
all the floodwaters of all that wrath and bring it down to crush his own son. How could we know God outside of Christ? To know his nature of how patient and loving he is. To know the wisdom and knowledge of Christ in our own selfishness. My children have a problem of eating in the playroom. And there's a lot of ants in the playroom. And when I walk through, I try to mitigate the problem by stepping on ants. I'm losing. There's more. How selfish are you? Look to Jesus Christ to know his love. Should he not crush you? What are you to him? In relation of being, what are you to him? Especially when so stubborn and sinful, prideful, that he became like you, to be crushed for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. Do you want to know of God's love? In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look to that cross and realize, oh my gosh, his love. For I am less than the lowest ant to him. And he was crushed for me. Do you see what I'm doing to you? Do you see that I'm only starting? Do you see your life should be this meditation? There are treasures hidden inside him. You can know the beauty and glory of God by this way to look to Christ. The wisdom and knowledge of God in our weakness, finally. We are cursed, locked away in an inevitable dungeon of death, proceeding and always proceeding to die like a strong river, drifting and dragging us like a boat without oars, spilling over to the place where we will finally die. Look to Christ to find your weakness. How weak are you? How feckless are you? Like a boat without oars, we are all being drifted and pushed by this river of death, leading us to the curse of a place we cannot paddle against this stream. We are weak. We are prone to die. We are cursed to it, and we could not raise our hand to God for one moment to stop him. We have no power. We are feckless and weakless we have nothing. How do you know that? Look to Jesus. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. That in Jesus we find God's power. That he would and only he would and only he could in Jesus turn back the tide of that river. To paddle against the current. To swallow the curse of death. That in Ephesians it says, the immeasurable greatness, that because we see Jesus this way, we know of our own powerlessness. And in Jesus we also learn of God, his absolute power. So at the same time of looking at Jesus, we learn tremendous things about God and tremendous things about ourselves so that we would be able to say with Paul in Ephesians, the immeasurable greatness of his power has worked a tremendous work toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. That tremendous power has been exercised for you because of your absolute helpless, utter weakness. 
We are cursed in nothing more than death. And without this power, there is nothing in us to save us. We will die and never rise. But the tremendous power is worked in Christ. And this is only the beginning of the treasures. I've unfolded just a few. What I say is to invite you. Seek Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. Dear Father God, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. The consolation for us, Lord, is that we do not have to worry about running other places to find you or running other places to find wisdom. For we have come to Christ, who is the fullness of God. And the challenge, Lord, you place upon us, this great joy and privilege, Father, that we might pursue you. Father, I ask this one final prayer that you would work in us an insatiable appetite for the beauties of Christ. That we would look upon him and find treasures forevermore. Please spur us along to do this, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.